This week's episode of Certified comes to you from ACE the OCS. This time of year, everyone is looking for practice tests to make sure they are ready for test day, and we've got an excellent suggestion to help you prepare to ace the exam. ACE the OCS is an updated practice test written for the 2021 exam with questions that feel similar to the actual test regarding their difficulty, question breakdown by body region, and content areas. The author includes several references and detailed explanations behind right and wrong answers for each question to help you learn. Please see the direct Amazon link in our show notes and order your copy today. Again, the name of the book is Ace the OCS, and you can order it directly through Amazon at the link in the show notes. This is Certified, the OCS Prep Podcast. I'm Alexis. And I'm Amanda. And we're here to help you prepare for your OCS exam. Okay, so in this episode, we are going to talk about the thoracic spine and ribs. Um, So this area is estimated to be about 6% of the OCS exam. So it's important to review. Um, And we also feel like it's really important to understand clinically. So the current concepts has a great anatomy and biomechanics review. Um, I just want to point out a few things, but if you feel like you need more of that review, you can, of course, um, reference the current concepts and, and dig into this a little bit deeper. So a couple things I want to talk about, um, first of all, is the trapezius muscle. So that has an important role in force coupling to allow for normal scapulohumeral rhythm. So I'm sure all of us see it oftentimes where there's some dysfunction in that area, overuse of that upper trap muscle, um, and that has an important attachment in this region. So I wanted to mention that. Uh, the erector spinae, so the role in the thoracic spine of those muscles is to maintain an upright neutral thoracic curve. Spinal extensor weakness has been associated with thoracic hyperkyphosis, osteoporosis, decreased quality of life, and increased risk of falls in older, older adults. The serratus anterior muscle is, of course, also important in force coupling to allow for that normal scapulohumeral rhythm, and this is one where um, I often see some weakness in that muscle. The pectoralis major and minor, which can also affect, again, normal scapulohumeral function. The anterior and middle scalene muscles, which we know attach to the first rib and can cause the elevated first rib when the cervical spine is flexed. The posterior scalene attaches to the second rib and can elevate the second rib when the cervical spine is fixed. I'm sorry, I meant fixed on the first one, on the anterior middle scalene as well. Um, and then the diaphragm. And this is, again, another muscle that I feel like um, I'm, I've, in the last year or two, really started addressing this with more of my patients. Um, but just a quick anatomy review of the diaphragm. So the diaphragm has three parts. The sternal which arises from the back of the xiphoid process, the costal, which arises from the internal surfaces of the costal cartilage and adjacent parts of the lower six ribs, and the lumbar portion, which is from the first or the first two or three lumbar vertebra. So a lack of relaxed diaphragmatic breathing is an important is an impairment that often accompanies both acute and chronic spinal disorders and could contribute to thoracic spine, spinal mobility restrictions. So um, I wanted to kind of point that out because when you really think about the attachments of the diaphragm, it's clear how this can be affecting not only our patients who present with mid-back pain, rib dysfunction, but also those who have lower back pain. And I often think that's something that we maybe just don't 
pay as much attention to. Um, and I also think it's important to point out there is um, the, the diaphragm and the pelvic floor should be functioning together. Um, you get this sort of pissing effect between the diaphragm and the, the pelvic floor. Um, and so that can often cause some issues as well. So if you have someone who's having breathing dysfunction along with if you're suspicious that there could be pelvic floor dysfunction, um, you're probably on the right track with that person. So just a little bit on the biomechanics of the thoracic spine and ribs, just a little review here. The thoracic spine can be thought of in three parts. So you've got your upper thoracic spine, which functions very similarly to the cervical spine. Your middle thoracic spine, which functions independently and has significant influence on the rib cage. And then the lower thoracic spine, which functions very similarly to the lumbar spine. Although the rib cage limits the range of thoracic spinal motion and increases the stability of the thoracic spine, the thoracic segments are capable of moving independently of the rib cage. Um, so with flexion and extension, motion in the sagittal plane gradually increases from T1 to T2 to T11 to 12. And as the facets become more, as the facets become more oriented in the sagittal plane. With your side bending range of motion, um, the side bending in the thoracic spine gradually increases from T1 to 2 down to T11 to 12. And with rotation, the thoracic spine rotation is greatest in the upper segments and reduces in the lower segments. So it's opposite of flexion extension and side bending. Um, and then you're also going to see obviously we want to look at inspiration and expiration. So with inspiration, the anterior ends of the ribs rise with the sternum and the lateral ribs are going to move laterally and superiorly as the thoracic segments extend. During expiration, the anterior and lateral ribs move inferiorly and the thoracic segments return to neutral. Another area that I want to hit on um, is neural dynamics. And I don't want to get too much into this, but I do think it's very important in this region. So if you look at page six in the current concepts, they discuss details of the sympathetic chain um, and the potential effects of thoracic spine mobility on neural tissues in the thoracic region. And for the purpose of this episode, I don't want to dive too deep into this, but I do think reviewing those details are helpful for understanding why we need to look at the thoracic spine in our patients who are presenting with neural tissue tension. I, did you want to add something, Amanda? No, I okay. agree. It's definitely worth reviewing if it's not something you treat a lot. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then I also wanted to point out um, something that I think we talked about this a lot in school, I feel like, but T4 syndrome. Um, so patients are going to present with stiffness in the upper and middle thoracic region, headaches, neck pain, upper extremity pain, and that bilateral stocking glove paresthesia. So just a diagnosis that I feel like um, might be overlooked, especially with some of those symptoms, you may think be thinking more, there's just this kind of um, headaches and you're looking at those symptoms and, and it might be overlooked. So just something to remember to make sure we're looking at that T4 region and your patients that are presenting this way. So um, with thoracic pain referral patterns, the current concepts discusses two studies um, where they look at the zygopophyseal joints. Um, in the first study, they injected a noxious stimulus into T3-4 and T10-11. The findings showed the most intense pain referred one segment inferior and slightly lateral to the joint that was injected. They found that no joints referred pain more superior than one half of the vertical height of that vertebral segment 
However, distal referral was up to two and a half segments below the injected level. They also noted two subjects that had anterior chest wall and sternal pain when T3-4 and T4-5 segments were injected. In the second study, they injected C7-T1 through T2-3 and T11-12 segments in a group of 15 patients complaining of thoracic spine pain. Pain referral from the C7-T1 to T2-3 segments overlapped extensively, with pain reported over the paravertebral region inferior toward the superior angle of the scapula and the interscapular region toward the inferior angle of the scapula. The T1112 segment produced pain localized to the paravertebral region of the segment and in one patient over the ipsilateral iliac crest. Across all subjects, only unilateral pain was reproduced and no radiating pain, including anterior or lateral chest wall pain, was reported. Um, there's also some discussion of a few studies showing that costovertebral and costotransverse joints can generate pain signals. The thoracic disc, similar to the cervical and lumbar, does, does have the potential to generate pain signals. However, a study by Wood and colleagues showed incidence of asymptomatic thoracic disc protrusions is approximately 37%. Furthermore, a two-year follow-up reported that there was little change in the size of the disc protrusions, suggesting that these disc abnormalities exist in a state of relative flux. Therefore, just like in the cervical and lumbar regions, the author suggests that clinicians should interpret MRI findings of disc protrusions with caution. Um, the lower cervical spine can also refer pain to the mid-back and the thoracic spine. So I just wanted to kind of touch on, um, as you can see from the studies that they talk about in the current concepts, I feel like this region is a little, sometimes it's hard to pinpoint exactly where it's coming from and exactly what segments might be involved. Amanda, I don't know what your clinical experience is with working with those who have pain in this region. Um, you know, it's kind of variable to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just really variable. <laughs> Mm -hmm. I think the hard part is, you know, a lot of times you do get that referral towards that interscapular region and toward going kind of towards the shoulder blade or some patients to me have described it as almost like under the shoulder blade. Um, but, you know, upon further investigation, it seems like there's a lot of restriction through the actual thoracic spine segment. So it's just something to keep in mind. I will say the pain presentation is variable, I guess is what I mean. But I find that most of my patients with cervical spine dysfunction, it's not like they have this great mobile thoracic spine either. So oh, I find myself 90% yeah. of the time treating both. Yes. Yep. I agree. Um, so next thing I want to talk about is pathologic conditions. And I'm just going to touch on this briefly. Briefly, it's very important to rule out the presence of serious or visceral causes of thoracic spine pain in these patients. It's estimated that primary thoracic spine pain only makes up approximately 15% of all spinal pain. So that means that most of the time, people who have pain in that mid-back region, it, it's likely coming from something else. Um, so we're not going to go into details on all the different things we should be screening for these patients in this episode. Um, because we're really trying, and we've mentioned this, to keep these episodes a little shorter and easier to digest. However, we do think that this topic is really important to review, both clinically and for the OCS. So um, we're going to do a bonus episode that's all focused on screening the thoracic region. Um, so if you're a Patreon member, you'll have access to this episode. Um, and we're really going to dive in a little bit deeper on red flags and what you should be looking for um, and what that might be indicating. 
So we're going to get a little into the physical examination of these patients now. So um, when it comes to posture, I think this is something that's been discussed a lot, especially in the last few years. But Greg Morris and colleagues completed a study in 88 asymptomatic patients aged 20 to 50 that studied the association of postural abnormality and history of pain. They found no relationship between pain frequency and severity and the severity of postural abnormalities. This showed that the link between thoracic spine posture, pain, and injury are uncertain. Um, So in current concepts, they suggest using a symptom modification procedure to determine if there is a link between posture and the patient's symptoms. Have the patient perform a painful task, then correct their posture, and have them repeat the task and assess if their symptoms change. So I think that's important, and I think there's a lot of therapists who are... um, throwing out there, especially with social media and people kind of putting out more information now, you know, posture doesn't matter. And I wouldn't necessarily go that far. Um, I, especially now, um, and we've discussed this a little bit in previous episodes with people working from home. I've seen a lot of things going on with neck and mid back that um, are new from changing their desk position. So it's certainly not that it doesn't matter. I think maybe we just don't need to be putting quite as much, um, emphasis on, you know, quote unquote, poor posture as we previously did. I mean, I don't know if you have anything you want to add to that. No, I think it's, it's case by case. I agree. I think sometimes mm-hmm. people I've worked with therapists that try to like overcorrect posture and make it this like unattainable goal for patients. And I think that could be really tough. Yeah. Yeah. But I also don't think it needs to be totally thrown out the window. Okay. So I liked their um, suggestion of the symptom modification procedure. So the next thing we want to look at is, of course, your range of motion. Um, So assessment of the thoracic spine range of motion can be completed using an inclinometer. Normative values for clinical measurement of the thoracic spine range of motion have not been investigated. So you'll need to use your clinical reasoning in these patients to determine if they have adequate range of motion for their individual daily tasks that they need to be able to do. Assessing for centralization. So you want to assess if different movements cause symptoms to peripheral peripheralize or centralize. The prevalence of the centralization sign in patients with primary thoracic spine pain has not been studied, but again, may be helpful clinically. It's important to complete a cervical spine screening and other adjacent body parts to determine if thoracic symptoms may be coming from the neck, upper extremity, shoulder girdle, lumbar spine, pelvis, or lower extremity. Um, So of course, we've talked about this plenty of times, we want to look above and below and make sure that, um, you know, we're looking at the whole picture with these patients and anything that could possibly be involved. So next we're going to talk about segmental examination of the thoracic spine. Further research needs to be done to determine the reliability of detecting painful motion segments in patients with a primary complaint of thoracic spine pain. However, these tests may still be useful clinically when coupled with the history and other objective tests. Initially, the clinician should palpate along the thoracic spine to assess for tenderness in the medial gutter between the spinous process and the transverse process. Segmental mobility testing can then be performed by applying a PA force with the patient prone. This can be done both bilaterally and unilaterally. And then looking at chest wall range of motion, you want to observe the patient's breathing mechanics and palpate along their ribs. Um, When looking at rib cage positioning and range of motion, rib cage dysfunction may present with a tenderness to palpation at the rib angle, pain or reduced or increased movement during inspiration or expiration, and pain with spring testing over the involved rib. 
And then the last thing I want to touch on uh, with examination is the first rib testing using the cervical rotation lateral flexion test. So first rib dysfunction can be present in a number of upper quarter clinical syndromes. So it's really important that we're screening this. This test is performed with the patient in a sitting position. The cervical spine is rotated passively and maximally away from the side that's being tested. Then the cervical spine is gently side bent as far as possible, moving the ear toward the chest. A test is positive when the side bending movement is limited or blocked. So Amanda, is there anything you want to add to this assessment or examination section? No, I don't think so. Okay. I will say, yeah, I, I mean, guess there's... the one thing is for first rib, I will, I do do like some spring testing and stuff too. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes just to get a little bit more of an appreciation. And then I do use that cervical rotation lateral flexion test, but sometimes I'll kind of palpate and do um, some kind of spring testing of the first rib before I do that yeah. test. Yeah, I do that as well. Um, and, you know, you can see, and when I was reviewing the current concept there, there's definitely a lot of things in the th- thoracic region that I think need more, more research and need investigated a little bit further. Um, but I, I think they lay out a pretty good um, general way to evaluate this area. And, you know, of course, we want to make sure we're looking at the above and below at the cervical and lumbar spine as well. So um, intervention, obviously patient education, as with all of our patients, we should be educating these patients on their physical therapy diagnosis, prognosis, and their plan of care. Although it's not specifically researched in the thoracic spine, we know that patient education combined with manual therapy and therapeutic exercises has improved outcomes in patients with chronic spinal disorders. So manual therapy has been shown to be beneficial for those with thoracic spine and rib impairments, However, there's no definitive research evidence to suggest the superiority of one manual technique over another. The choice of what manual therapy technique should be used should be determined by patient presentation, patient preference, and therapist experience. Manual therapy is thought to provide short-term pain relief that can provide the patient with reassurance of a favorable outcome and facilitate active management strategies. Um, So if you look in the current concepts, again, I'm not going to go through and like read all of these and try and describe them because I don't think that would be very effective um, on this platform. But if you look at pages 19 through 24 in current concepts, there's pictures and details on both thrust and non-thrust techniques. Um, Two things I do want to note, though, are that thrust techniques are contraindicated in those with osteoporosis due to the risk of vertebral or rib fractures, and that manual techniques of course, should always be followed by active treatment. So we shouldn't have people coming in and we're, you know, doing massage, dry needling, um, uh, joint mobilization, and then just sending them on their way. Um, The most important thing is that we get them moving and those manual treatments are just supposed to kind of initiate that. So therapeutic exercise, of course, we should always address the impairments we find in our screening. The most common techniques used include exercises to improve middle thoracic flexion, increase thoracic extension, improve lower trapezius muscle re-education, serratus anterior muscle re-education, and trunk rotation. In older adults with thoracic spine impairments, utilizing spinal extensor strengthening, upper and lower quarter stretching, postural awareness exercises, balance activities, and thoracic spine mobilization exercises have led to improvements in pain, health-related quality of life, strength, thoracic spine posture, and thoracic spine mobility. 
In one randomized trial with postmenopausal women, it showed that performing a prone trunk lift 10 reps daily with five second holds resulted in a reduction in the incidence of vertebral fracture at a 10 year follow up. Um, so they talk a little bit too about current concepts, pages 26 to 28 on regional interdependence. Um, but really, as we always discuss, it's all connected. Um, so that's what's, what's most important to remember is we're treating the whole person, not just the area where they're having their pain. Um, and I did also want to touch on outcome measures. So there is no specific outcome measure for the thoracic spine and ribs. So what you could do is you could choose to do an NDI if they've got upper thoracic pain, an oswestry for lower thoracic pain, or you could do the, use the patient-specific functional scale. So um, when choosing an outcome measure for these patients, uh, you'll just kind of have to use your clinical judgment, and that might require you know, asking the patient a little further beforehand where they're experiencing their pain most so that you can give them the appropriate outcome measure. So that's really what I wanted to touch on with thoracic spine and ribs. Um, I just wanted to make sure that we had an episode on that. I do think it's a significant enough portion of the test that it's important to be sure you're reviewing that. Um, but like I said, for our Patreon members, we're going to dive in a little deeper in terms of assessing these patients and making sure that they're not presenting with something that we need to refer them out for. So is there anything, Amanda, that you want to add to this? I don't think so. That was a good overview. Great. Perfect. Okay. So as always, if you guys have questions, feel free to shoot us an email at certified OCS podcast at gmail.com. All right. Thank you.